Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I've had a lot of chats with her, but I'm not sure everybody knows the full story of her career, so I'm excited to get into it and get into some stories. So today's guest played for a few clubs growing up, but played her 18-year with uh, the Peel Selects. She's an OUA champion with McMaster and also has two OUA silver medals. A lot of our listeners would recognize her as a coach at Camp Madawaska. She's also coached with Region 3 and some OVA high-performance programs. And she's also coached club with Forest City and the Stratford Singers. And she's got a PhD in kinesiology, focusing in sports management. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Please welcome to the show, Kylie Wasser. Kylie, thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. You know, it feels weird. Every once in a while, I have to start a podcast just so I can catch up and talk to people. But that's fine. I'll use this show as a crutch just to feel like I can talk to you again. Sounds great. Hey, I'm out here in Stratford and uh, not... Too many of my friends live out this way, so it's great to see you again. <laughs> well, awesome. I think you guys may be labeled as a volleyball family with you playing post-secondary and obviously Blaze playing uh, post-secondary and still in the one volleyball league. I think if COVID wouldn't stop that, he'd still be playing, which is good to see. But uh, I'm wondering, with you being the older sibling, are you the one responsible for making that into a volleyball house? Or how did you kind of get hooked? And then did Blaze just kind of follow your lead? Absolutely. Directly. I want absolute responsibility for that. Um, he was a baseball player before, uh, he turned over to volleyball. It started with me wanting to practice in the driveway and needing a backboard of sorts. Uh, and blaze was that backboard. Um, <laughs> and eventually I said, you know, if you want, I can show you how to hit it back instead of just trying to catch it or retrieve it. Um, and then slowly that evolved into him you know, passing it back, digging it back into pepper. And then we would play up until I moved out for university for hours every day, driveway ball, just hours on end, just peppering, spiking the ball at each other's faces. Uh, and it's like, I think such a like lovely and core memory of the two of us growing up, but uh, no, a hundred percent. I brought volleyball into this family. Uh, I would like credit. Nice, nice. But uh, who got you switched on? Was there a good school coach? Did your friend invite you out to club? Did you say, mom and dad, I want to go play club volleyball? Like, what was maybe your ignition point to make volleyball your thing? Yeah, uh, my elementary school, uh, when I was in grade six, I was looking for things to do and participate in. um, And they had volleyball and basketball. And I had done a basketball camp once, but I had never done a volleyball camp. And I was okay. I made the team in grade six. So then let's try a volleyball camp. And the closest one that we had to us in Burlington was Hamilton Seekers. Uh, They ran a volleyball camp and I became obsessed. I became hooked. I saw the tall, strong, majestic women. And they were highly, highly skilled. They played mostly in, you know, United States tournaments. They all went to NCAA programs and they, I had never had sort of like a female sports role model mentor ever in that way. And having like them as my coach for that week, oh, I just totally bought in. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be just like them. And that's kind of how I got hooked. 
on, on volleyball and how the sport like kind of uh, took off in our lives. Yeah, that's so interesting. That name doesn't come up too much, but I, I think that was an era when most of the OVA club teams were adults, right? And they were running like some kids programs where uh, like even I think when we were growing up, like they have 15 you now, 16 you, 17 you. I think OVA used to go like two age groups at a time because there wasn't enough kids playing, right? So I think it's, it's kind of neat to look back and see how far volleyball's kind of grown. So you knew what club was, I guess, because you went to a seekers camp. But when did you go to your, like your first club volleyball tryout? Yeah, uh, the first tryout. So uh, then grade seven comes around. I had no idea when volleyball tryouts would be. I literally found out when I looked in the paper and it was uh, Burlington Blades had their volleyball tryouts last weekend. And I just cried. I just cried because I, I missed it. So then the next year, grade eight, I tried out for the Burlington Blazes 14 U team and made it. And uh, and the rest is history, shall we say. <laughs> now, in that Burlington area, that's kind of a, I think it was a hotbed. It's definitely still a hotbed now with the amount of clubs. Uh, was Burlington just like the hometown club that was going to be closest? Or when did you start to look around and realize that there was probably half a dozen or more clubs within driving distance of that area, just because it seems so popular for volleyball in that area? Yeah, at the time, there was not that many volleyball clubs. So to be clear, uh, we had Burlington and then beyond Burlington, uh, Waterdown and Oakville. Uh, but that was it. Like uh, Milton came up at, in like, uh, you know, I think they only had like one team Like at the time. So many of the uh, clubs when I was there, so like you mentioned, they had like two, you know, every two years, so 14, you 16, you 18, you, uh, but they weren't even called that. They were called like Phantom, Midget, Ju- Juvie, Junior, or whatever. And a lot of times clubs were just a parent who maybe used to coach or used to play that wanted to give their kid a chance. And so it would start a club in their town, right? And then maybe that team would be good and they would grow and, you know, whatever. And that's how so many of the clubs that exist now that are huge, big, almost businesses sometimes. But uh, at the time, it was just like super sparse, just like pockets of teams here and there. And I hadn't really thought or heard about like driving to go play somewhere. Like that kind of didn't seem, that wasn't even like a thing. And uh, at the end of my first year playing club, you know, we were in like the third tier. So I don't know what they're called now. Um, we were not in Premier, um, but uh, we, my parents offered like, hey, like this club, you know, this team that we saw at such and such a tournament, they seemed really good. Uh, and I met one of the girls at like a, a super camp. Do you want to go try, try out for that team next year in Waterdown? And so my friend, uh, Sarah Hawkrick, who I played Burlington with, we traveled to Waterdown and made that team. That team ended up being a premier level team and, um, you know, had, that kind of like took off sort of like the uh, actual, like the real sort of like competitive side and more like looking towards like, oh, what's the next level? And I went to like youth national ID camps and the regional team from there and things like that. And then beach became a huge part of my life. Um, uh, mainly through Madawaska, through the same kind of phenomena that happened at the Seekers camp where I was at Madawaska for the indoor camp. And I saw the beach volleyball players uh, walking across. I literally know I and played against several of them afterwards, but I saw several uh, beach volleyball athletes walking across in, you know, cool, like, 
retro clothing mismatched with like bikinis and you know wearing like visors. It was the night early two thousands. It was still okay and cool to wear visors. Um, one of them had like all box braids in their hair, and I wanted to just be that. So. <laughs> that's where my interest in beach really came from honestly other than like it it seems so much cooler because it's on the beach and in the sand that's great yeah thanks for sharing that so it's interesting to hear you're, you're going to camps you're, you're getting better you're, you're kind of shopping clubs because you want to play at the next level but did your parents or coaches ever take you to a university game like did you know what the next level was and you could play post-secondary or did you just know there had to be something after like you mentioned like a junior national team tryout, what was the format back then? Because I feel like every cycle has a little different experience how they try out for the national team. But did you have to get on a plane or did they come to Ontario? Or like, what was the format for that thing? Yeah. So, oh gosh, I don't even... It was either grade nine or 10. It was at the University of Waterloo. And it was literally, you had to apply online with like, you know, an application, like an essay, or I don't even really super remember your credentials, your playing credentials, um, not even a video. And because there was so few clubs, like there was not the number of clubs that there were now, let alone teams or athletes, right? So yeah, you just applied online to the camp that was going to be near you. Mine was in Waterloo. I got the green light to go and I went to this uh, youth national IV camp. And it was just like a full day camp clinic type situation um, where I was not tall and was there as like outside hitter. was like, um, and was there against girls that I ended up playing with, like Amanda Cowdery, who played at uh, Dayton and Albany. It was incredible. I had such a hard, heavy outside ball. And I remember she hit a ball and Maddie Molyneux, who played in the States as well. And, you know, I'm like seven inches shorter than they are. And I was like, oh, oh, there is a different level of volleyball. And then, you know, that's when uh, libero position became increasingly attractive to me. Um, and at my grade 10 nationals, we met with some of the women that run the senior national team, Annie Levesque. Annie Levesque? No, that's Beach. The libero at the time, her name is Annie, uh, of the uh, senior women's national team. And I just like watched some clips of her playing and we met her and I thought she was just very cool. And I thought like, oh, wow, she's just as tall as I am. Like, okay, this could be how I can get to that next level um, and be like those idols that I look up to so much. So that's where I started like focusing in on being a libero and started going to, you know, more defensive camps and position camps and focusing on that exclusively but because I played so much beach I was just like a scrappy kind of player so I, I played left side really until my grade 11 year uh which is super funny uh and at regional team uh which I guess now would be it's like a high performance camp for 16 you I think I don't know I guess with COVID, I don't know if they do camps or just like an application yeah, great question. I'm not sure. I would hope the regional stuff still exists, but I feel like it got under one umbrella in like a bigger camp than it was like regionally yeah. driven. Because now I believe it's like a Team Ontario 16 year, uh, right, level where it's like, because um, it's like a high performance. They took the same high performance model to 16 year to do that type of camp. So um, that means in theory, I would have been at the camp. Uh, we didn't get selected for a, a provincial team at that time, so I didn't like, go further than that. But uh, at that, you know, 16U provincial regional camp, 
I started off as a libero, made the team as a libero, and then ended playing those games at Ontario Summer Games as a left side. Uh, yeah, because uh, the left side we had wasn't was was scared to swing, and uh, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sheer ignorance, not confidence or competence, just sheer ignorance. I'm, I'm standing left side, I'm going to swing as hard as I can. <laughs> so, so this is great because I think a lot of our young listeners, sometimes I bash the concept of like switching clubs and trying to make super teams, but it sounds like you were switching clubs because you had like more of a long-term goal or maybe had your focus or needs kind of sorted out more than like you wanted to play with friends. Like it was cause you had like a bigger picture in mind. So you start off at Burlington, you go to Waterdown. Like how did you end up with Peel Selects? Was it because you're going to yeah. so many camps, you just met different girls and you're like, we should play together. I like playing with you. Like, like prove me wrong on this theory that it is okay for athletes to switch clubs. If there's like a certain reason versus just like, Oh, let's get the best five players together and we'll be really good. Yeah. I mean, beyond even a certain reason. So when I was, Let's back it up. So when I was quote unquote like switching clubs or going to different teams, I would like to say and defend that I left every club and team I was on with on a positive relationship with both the club and the coach, and then have even like worked with those coaches in the future. So I think because the OBA now has policies that are in place around club switching and team switching and tryout windows and things like that, it's become a lot more like transactional. Whereas back then, because it was so, so so few clubs and coaches and players, everyone knew who everyone was and volleyball, everyone still does, but it was even smaller then. So it, it, my parents didn't necessarily have a volleyball background. My dad had some baseball background, but a thing that they really preached was like integrity and that, I be honest and upfront. So I face to face told every coach why I was leaving that team or club and why, and always ended up on a positive note. And so like, I think that that's a lot different than now. Like, I don't think that that situation would really happen now necessarily. It might. So yeah, 14 U. Uh, I tried out for most teams. I wanted to have a backup, but I, I ended up going to, to Waterdown and played there for two years. Uh, we, I love that team. We were really, uh, successful. We finished, uh, in the, we medaled at, uh, 15, uh, 15U and 16U Eastern Nationals. So like we, we were a strong team in the grade 10 year. The coach just ended up not coming back due to personal commitments. They didn't have a coach to step in. So the team just dissolved. So that's not really any type of leaving or confrontation. So the team, pretty much a couple girls were like, oh, well, that's it for me. Volleyball's done. And then the rest of us kind of split off to different clubs. I went to Oakville. I looked at a couple different, but I went to Oakville and uh, with a couple of my teammates and um, ended up making the team there, stayed for a year. That's when um, my grade 11 year, I did a lot of clinics. I was starting to look at universities. I was starting to think about that. Um, which is a little bit too late now, I would say. Yeah, that's also the year at Madawaska, or maybe it was the year before. But in those two years, uh, I met Jackie Ellis, uh, formerly of the senior and youth women's national team uh, and of one volleyball, and Kelly Frittenberg, formerly of Western University, Calgary, youth national team. 
I could brag about them all day. They are <laughs> such fantastic women. And I am honestly so like honored to have played with them. I had so much fun. Uh, but then, so met them at camps, had so much fun playing with them at camps. Um, our, I will never forget this. I don't think you were there, but my sort of senior year at Madawaska Beach, we have the indoor versus court players uh, game. And the roster that we had, every single girl and three girls on the bench ended up playing post-secondary. Like it was a stacked lineup of like uh, Rachel Buxton, who ended up playing at Tulsa and at uh, UCF, yeah, University of Central Florida. So her, Jackie, Kelly, um, uh, <laughs> Becky Billings, who ended up playing, Emily Kite, who played at McGill, Becky Billings played at Queens and Ryerson, obviously. Um, I, I, like it was just, it was uh, Megan uh, Gilmore who played at uh, Laurier and then uh, Nipissing. So it was just so fun. We won by a lot and we had to bring out the uh, bench lineup, but like that level of volleyball, even when it's just, you know, a grass court game, I, I wanted that. I wanted more of that. And that to me was like, oh, that is the next level. That's why I achieved my goals. You know, went to both tryouts to be able to have a backup, kind of. But then it was really clear I was going to make that team. So had a conversation with the coach. Left and played there in my grade 12 year. Uh, ended up making McMaster as a walk-on. I was looking at McMaster and Western. And uh, then played at McMaster for three years. Sorry, I rambled a lot. No, that was, that was excellent. That's so interesting that you kind of bet on yourself as a walk-on because I feel I feel like a walk-on status right now is almost like a policy that the athletic director says you have to host tryouts and coach does it but I don't hear too many walk-on stories contributing to the team very often unless it's just like poor recruiting or the kid was in Trillium D all year and he just never saw them and it's like a pleasant surprise where I, I don't again I don't hear too many walk-on stories so with somebody of your caliber play was there any recruiting stories or you chose Mac because one you thought you had a shot at making the team and it was the program you wanted but was there another college or university you could have played at that you knew you had a spot on yeah yeah which like midway through my McMaster career we'll talk about it. I was kind of kicking myself <laughs> uh, I had interest from other universities uh, Side of the province, you know, some D2 schools in the States, um, some colleges more, but I was really academically driven and I at the time wanted to be a surgeon, so orthopedic surgeon <laughs> specifically. So um, I was looking at uh, Western and McMaster in my final year. Um, I wanted to stay in the province because I want to stay within like a drive from my parents kind of, and from home and people I knew. Um, whereas like East coast, I didn't have any family. I didn't know anyone out there. Um, I was not good enough to be scared by anyone in the West. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, there was some colleges in Ontario that had approached me, but I was so academically focused on the university and specifically a really good like health sciences or kin program. And so, and I also didn't want to live in a open city campus like Ottawa or Toronto. Not that I was uh, good enough to make a walk on to Toronto by any means, but uh, but yeah, that's how I made that decision. Which yeah. 
So I don't get to hear too much about a walk-on tryout because I, I went to Durham and I felt like a walk-on was the tryout because it's college and like you have your returning players, but then you don't know what you're getting. Uh, but at the university level, did coach separate the athletes who were already on the team or are they in the same practice gym? Like how many athletes attend a walk-on at a school the size of Mac? Like, do you remember, was it a one shot? Was it a whole week? Like what was the the structure of this tryout? Yeah. So I... I've been in contact with Tim Louse, uh, the coach at McMaster, for the past, you know, in my grade 12 year consistently. Um, you know, he had kind of been like, maybe we'll recruit you, but it didn't end up working out. Mainly because in my year, they got two transfers that just changed the game for them. Heidi Bench from Niagara and Kayla Jansen, who came from uh, Florida Atlantic, both 6263. Uh, and as a result, uh, two of the girls, or at least one of the girls on their team who was a you know third left side, switched right over to Libero. And then she became the starting Libero. So the confidence you bring to from becoming the third left side moving to Libero, you can you can imagine. Like she was fantastic. Three Cameron, uh, awesome. Libero, great senior to play under. Um, but so did have to go to open tryouts. They do a tryout format where all athletes are expected to attend, um, you know, returning. Uh, I don't necessarily remember from my second and third year what the policies were about, like, if you everyone had their spot or not. I think that there was a rhetoric that everyone had to try out, but also, like, Jed Holt was not getting cut. So <laughs> let's be very clear. <laughs> um, I think that there was three to five tryouts spaced in in the first week of school like or before you know maybe before school started in the first week of move-in things like that so I do remember that they were intense um you know once you're in that big gym in the Burridge you know where the where the games are played and the stands aren't there so there's three courts and it is very high ceiling when you're used to playing in a high school small gym right so uh it was really intimidating I love tying this back, but the senior and captain for that year, who I met on my first day of tryouts, was Carly Welch, who was my coach at Hamilton Seekers when I went in uh, all those years ago. And she like we talked, and she ended up you know half kind of remembering me, and it was it was just it was a beautiful kind of like connection that we shared, and uh, like I. She was such a great captain and leader and really like pulled us to those, uh, that OUA final in my first year. And like, I, oh, I love playing with her and like looking up to her. She, yeah, it was awesome. So another ramble, sorry. <laughs> no, no, all good. So you end up making the squad. How many athletes did coach uh, Tim keep that year? Like, did it feel like a big squad or like when you're at practice, did you feel like you're getting reps or was it honestly like a roster of 20 and, and sometimes you'll get your touches, but sometimes you're helping shag balls and watching like the A's play the B's. Yeah. So I was the only athlete they took from walk-ons um, and he ended up, I was not planned. And I think he probably was looking for every reason to cut me because we ended up with a team of 15. Um, not a convenient number for traveling or <laughs> rosters. Um, and I'll be honest, very honest about this. Uh, I was not, I was somewhere between a full team member and a red shirt. I, and, and uh, I'm happy to like get into the nitty gritty, but essentially I was a full team member 
but didn't dress. I had a jersey. I got I had all of the like privileges that all of the starting athletes had. I traveled everywhere. Like there was no di- I got I got equal reps in practice. I got individual practices. Um, like what you had even just said about like was it me shagging a lot? No. Like I got reps every single practice and I had two other liberos ahead of me, one in third year, one in fourth year, did not look optimistic for my playing career. Um, but they treated me as an equal, like every person on that team treated me as an equal. Like I was on the team. I just didn't wear a Jersey. And he even said, Oh, you could have worn a Jersey, but you can't wear a Jersey on the sideline and be on the roster. So like that was stuck in some, in a lot of ways, let's be very clear. I wanted to play. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to compete. I wanted to win. I wanted to achieve my dreams of, you know, going to what the highest level I could. Um, but that was the situation that I was dealt with in my first year. So. Now you mentioned the, the leadership a couple times. What are some actual examples you would encourage athletes to do to make somebody in your spot feel connected, right? Cause you, you could have got the poor me's. And I think uh, oftentimes, at least in the college ranks that I've seen, a lot of rosters will change from first semester to second semester because kids think they shouldn't be sitting and they'll quit or they'll pack it in or they'll do this or that, where it felt like you felt like you were still contributing to the team. You're still getting your reps. Like there was people who were reaching out to you, like you had a connection with some of the leaders. So what are some things that like the seniors can do on a team to make sure everybody's connecting and vibing and not feeling like, I'm the 15th person. I'm never going to get in. This is a waste of my time. I could go have a social life and study versus doing this stuff. Right. So how did they make you feel connected to the squad? Yeah. Great question. They never addressed me differently. Like there was never the team and Kylie, it was just the team. And when we did something like, I will say like the culture that we had as a team in that first year, when we won OUA gold was incredible. Like if we were going out, the whole team went out. Like we did, we were just so united towards our goal and like supportive and hungry. Do you know what I mean? Um, so one, yeah, they, they, that I was just, I was included always. There was never any type of identification or separating or singling out. Um, the, I was treated as because I was the only rookie and the other two, rookies quote unquote were transfers who were much older 20 and 21 and also much larger um i was very much like the baby in terms of age stature so they i think also enjoyed having someone who was so fresh and was looking at this team and the university and varsity experience with such eager and um fresh eyes where you know the other two athletes especially Kayla playing in the NCAA had kind of like uh been around the block you know um so I think that they kind of enjoyed having someone to take under their wing uh which they very much did um so including me in 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 everything that we did as as a team or or even just um if they were going out to get you know drinks and wings or watch something or whatever I was you know, always included. And, you know, they were my my family until I uh, uh, left the program and um, still very grateful to call so many of them, my friends, including uh, Larissa Kuach, now Bicolo, um, who has coached with a lot of the uh, provincial programs. We played at McMaster together and played against each other in grades six, seven, eight um, elementary school volleyball. So 
it's a great friendship that I'm still grateful for <laughs> to this day. <laughs> nice. So as you advance through your career, did second year feel different than first year? Like did uh, a lot of athletes cycle out? Like there was there a lot of seniors who were in there last year? Like how did it kind of feel going into your second year with Mac? Going into my second year was different. So I uh, did a lot of coaching that summer. That's when I first was coaching with the regional games. We went to Ontario Summer Games. Um, I was still playing beach, and uh, but I was living at home with my parents. Um, I didn't have any employment opportunities in Hamilton, or I, I didn't consider that during the years. So I needed to move home to to work there. And I didn't, um, there's a couple things. I didn't really fully consider and understand what needed to be done as a varsity athlete in those summer months. So I needed to be training, but I, I didn't fully grasp that I needed to be training every single day at home. I made a lot of what I would say now are excuses, um, for, lots of different reasons. Uh, one of which being that I was incredibly insecure, uh, including my, about volleyball. Um, and the summer between second year, first and second year, particularly that started to increase. Um, there were new recruits coming in that were also Liberos and I just got very anxious. I had already been in a non uh, you know, on the roster starting type position. And I was really anxious to make sure I was on that roster the next year, but I didn't know who to talk to about this. And I didn't know how to like create solutions to achieve that. So instead I bottled that up and grew even more and more insecure, moved home, didn't have anyone to really talk to or like to understand how I should be going about that and didn't have the commitment to, you know, the training that you need to do in the summer. Um, and what I, you know, looking back, what did I need to do? I need to get a job in Hamilton so I can stay on campus and train with the team during the summer. We know this now, if you play varsity, that's usually how your summers go. And if you're not on campus with the team, you're probably training locally with an appropriate or, a, you know, a, a similar skill level to that. So you're getting reps in and you're getting the strength and conditioning. I didn't do that because I didn't feel that I could. Looking back, is that an excuse? Yeah, but that is that is the the way that things go. Uh, I mentioned being insecure because that summer, unfortunately, is when my insecurities really kind of took hold and my eating disorders took full force. And uh, I was so bulimic that summer. Uh, so that also contributed to me really not getting up to playing in performance caliber. Um, so, so, so yeah, so I came into tryouts in the second year and I received the same role, not a Jersey, not, I received a Jersey, but not a rostered spot. I was not going to be on the roster that year and, um, same kind of deal as the year before. Um, you know, I know the coach was disappointed when I stepped in and I wasn't fit. I didn't have like the muscle tone. I wasn't able to keep up with all the athletes that had stayed that summer. And I wasn't as strong as I was previously. Like I, you know, from driveway ball, from club, from all the training I had done previously, like I'm a libero. My strength is very much in my lower body. 
And I didn't, I didn't have any of that because I wasn't getting reps in a squatted position, you know, hundreds of reps in a week that we know are necessary to keep that, you know, intensity and skill level. Um, so, uh, that kind of, I'm not going to lie, leads to the like kind of beginning of the end of my playing career, uh, and the kind of spiral that, that really like took hold, uh, because I wasn't able to ask for help. I didn't, I didn't know who to ask for, for assistance or for guidance to both achieve the goals that I had to both address the painful, painful insecurities that were turning into a mental health disorder that took hold of my life for a good number of years. Um, and I, I just kind of like uh, started drowning alone. Uh, so second year while I was a part of the team, I, uh, there was a moment where all of our liberos kept getting injured and I was uh about to go in and it didn't happen so it was like a tease and uh that also just kind of contributed to to that again insecurity and kind of like emotional spiral I was on and I didn't know who to talk to I and who's I to talk to you know now like putting on my researcher hat you know you're still developing and still considered a child until you're 20 24 you know psychologically developmentally emotionally and so you know, even if I were to ask one of the seniors on my team, we're all still babies. You know, there's no one there that has the type of wisdom or life experience or guidance at that age that would have necessarily been able to help me get out of what I was going through or help me get into a better place. I, I don't think that there was anyone that I could have uh, within that like team or within my immediate circle. But I don't know, because again, I didn't ask. I didn't reach out. I just kind of kept that to myself. and. Uh, started drowning alone which sounds very very sad way to end that statement and story yeah i am curious because you're in a similar role as your first year and you guys win and then in your second year you finished second so the team's always competitive and did you feel like as your university career progressed like did you feel more part of it in your first year than you did in your second year because maybe your your thoughts are being clouded by some personal stuff like uh, I know the end result is very similar that you still played in an OUA final, but uh, maybe were you more all in in your first year just because of how how the environment felt, how the team room felt, everything that goes into it? Exactly. Those uh, We had a lot of fifth years um, in my first year, and uh, those those girls left, and they were a big present. Carly Welch, as I mentioned, Sarah Masterton, who ended up playing uh, one volleyball as well. Um and, and yeah, like I said, the culture, it just shifts and, and team culture is, has to shift as it, as it does year to year based on, you know, people that you have on the team. And it was still like a great team. Um, but as you said, that summer kind of between of like insecurity and just, just, it, it wasn't even that summer. It just slowly started building once I started university, if I'm being really honest. So I slowly and slowly became a little bit uh, less connected. Those kind of voices uh, that were not so positive in my head maybe got a little bit louder. And um, when you're eating disordered, like you isolate yourself. And so like I, I, I started to do that type of behavior. But I also did start to notice in my second, towards my third year, we'll talk about this, but that the team environment, specifically around volleyball, wasn't helping those thoughts and voices around my eating disorder. 
there were like pieces of maybe the environment of the sport maybe um that weren't positively contributing to me recovering from this disorder and mental illness that I was suffering from. Yeah, let, let's jump ahead to third year. So just to set the scene, are you trying out again? Like, is it Groundhog's Day and, and the offseason feels the same? Like, did you make any changes between second and third year? Or did you go home, work, come back to third year? Is it like, I'm trying out again and like, I'm still the libero and there's four liberos on the team. There's three liberos. Like, how did third year kind of feel for you? Was it more same than it was different? Oh, oh, yeah. We need to, we need to scoot back a little bit to summer of uh, summer after second year. So, um, you know, midway through second year, um, I start uh, having panic attacks, um, not being able to deal with it because I have a mental illness I'm not addressing. Um, and sadly, because I'm in kinesiology, I'm taking like health psych, exercise psych. I kind of enabled myself because I was able to rationalize a lot of behavior to say, oh, no, I'm not bulimic or anorexic because I don't meet this DSM diagnostic criteria, um, you know. Uh, and at the end of my second year, I started, or in the middle of my second year, actually, I started getting itchy. And I, and I don't mean just like a little bit itchy. I mean... Itching to the point where I bled. I mean, waking myself up itching. My entire body was covered in scratches or scabs. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, if you've seen health, I was exactly a house patient. Like It became me going to student health and, and trying to think like, okay, am I having allergic reaction? Getting prescribed an EpiPen. Not understanding at all what was happening. Nothing is showing up in the blood work that's irregular. So um, start of summer, I finally, uh, that summer, sorry, 2009, I finally start seeing a doctor, uh, you know, looks like a specialist because they can't track this down. My skin starts turning yellow, like highlighter yellow. Um, and so I get referred to a liver specialist, the liver specialist, um, essentially like can't figure out what's wrong, but refers me to for various tests. So for the you know next couple of weeks, I'm going for various like MRIs and ultrasounds and scans and what have you, all while getting blood work weekly. And nothing is showing up in the blood work to be able to point to what it is, but all they can tell is each week, my liver enzymes are getting worse and worse. And some of them are jumping and getting exponentially worse. And there's, you know, four or five enzymes that they're really worried about or, or markers, let's just say, that show up in your blood. This goes on and on and on to the point that I need to get a liver biopsy. I go for the liver biopsy, the radiologist. Uh, so a biopsy being that uh, they, it seems like a needle, but the needle has a claw at the end. And so they poke you with it and then the claw takes a chunk of your liver and then they pull it out and they did three of those. I'm on heavy meds and uh, numbing. So I can't like, I'm not supposed to feel it. And then on the second one, as they pull it out, I'm high on some type of drug. 
And I said, oh, I felt that. And the nurse said, no, you didn't. And I said, yeah, I did. And uh, she continues. And they, the third one, I said, ow. And I said, no, I felt that. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had gotten too close to my phrenic nerve. Your phrenic nerve is responsible for your diaphragm and your diaphragm helps control your breathing and moves your lungs um, up and down. So uh, essentially, because he got too close to that phrenic nerve, my diaphragm started dysfunctioning and not act, acting properly. So I couldn't sleep uh, from that point on lying down because my lungs weren't strong enough it felt like to breathe on their own lying down so I had to sleep on a lazy boy recliner in the living room of my student house and I was getting referred or I was getting this pain to my shoulder it was my right shoulder so I assumed it was from volleyball and I was misdiagnosed as having a tear in my rotator cuff 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 I said rotator cuff, rotor cuff. No, rotator cuff. I am a kinesiology student. Um, I didn't realize the area of referred pain from your liver. You can't feel your liver pain. It goes to somewhere else. It goes to your right shoulder. How convenient for me. Uh, so I was sleeping on a lazy boy recliner upwards in my student house with like three to six juice cans, tensor bandaged to my shoulder and neck. My roommates would bandage me up and then leave me there and then get me in the morning. Um, and I did that for several weeks until I thought I had a heart attack trying to walk down the street and a, you know, senior citizen ended up walking me to the ER uh, at McMaster. Uh, I think they thought I was bringing her in and uh, in reality, she was dragging me in. Um, so I called my dad, uh, said what was happening, and um, essentially the doctor at the ER didn't want to admit me because he couldn't trace to what was happening. Uh, my dad got really quiet and just walked away. Moments later, my dad comes back with the liver specialist I had been seeing, and she kind of looked a little pale, and she had said, I think it's time that we admit you, and I was admitted to the hospital for acute liver failure. Um, so I don't know what he said. My dad is a six foot three, kind of intimidating former police officer. So I'm going to guess it wasn't very polite. But regardless, I was admitted as an inpatient. Um, and then, uh, I mean, that's a whole other adventure and story, which actually ties in more of the volleyball community that um, is a crazy adventure. But I spent uh, in some two weeks in McMaster Hospital, that's now the Children's Hospital, so I couldn't stay there anymore. Uh, but yeah, I stayed there for two weeks and um, ended up recovering um, to be the healthy person I am now. But if you would like me to get into the story of the hospital, I can very much get into that because I, I can't leave out the juicy parts. I recognize I, I I jumped right to the end without kind of going back to the to the climax. But yeah, sorry, I'll pause and say comment. Uh, yeah, let, let's get into it. Cause I think uh, on a show like this, we've talked about like injuries, taking away sport and how that can affect their identity. But I think uh, I, I would go out and say that I think something happening to your, to your liver or feel like you're having a heart attack is maybe a little bit worse than tearing your ACL. And if you do your rehab, you'll be back playing where yours was a little bit more life-threatening and life-altering too. So yeah, let's, let's dive into it. Like 
what's your thought process when this is happening? Like, was there any anger towards the doctors that you were misdiagnosed or were you just happy they found it? Or like, what? like uh, you and I have known each other for a while. You don't strike me as somebody who gets the poor me's, but was this finally a time for you to feel sorry for yourself because this was some pretty gnarly going on and taking away some opportunities? Like I, I imagine it's hard to be a student and hard to be a varsity athlete when you're, you know, being admitted for something pretty serious and life altering, right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'll be honest. I still, I, I still got a case with poor me. I had to at some point, I mean, um, but more towards the end, I mean, at the beginning, to be clear, I wasn't diagnosed yet. I was, I was, I was admitted with acute liver failure, but they didn't know why my liver was failing. And I'm, if your liver is the only organ you have in your body, obviously besides your skin to an extent that, that regenerates itself. Um, and if it had been any other organ, I would have needed very much a transplant or I might not be here right now. Um, so my liver, so I get, I, I get admitted with acute liver failure. There's no wing for digestive diseases, which is what you would call this. So I get put with a lot, I get put with, um, uh, orthopedics. So, uh, anything that's like broken bones, um, or things, dislocations and things like that. And my roommate ended up being a 92-year-old woman, 92-year-old woman named Ethel who broke her hip and her wrist when she fell. Sweet, sweet lady. But um, I definitely don't miss the fact that she needed bedpan changing all the time. And I wasn't in that type of position. So, I mean, I understand and um, can empathize. But, you know, I was 20 at the time and I was seeing pictures of my friends going out and living their lives in the summer because this was um, the end of June, beginning of July, and um, being in a hospital wing with a 92-year-old with a full bedpan wasn't my hot girl summer I had imagined at age 20. So, um, the basically, the moment I'm admitted, I become a full-blown house episode, and every single day I'm going for tests. Every day they're taking multiple vials of blood, um, I end up getting like crazy bruising on my forearms and all the places and they're kind of running out of places to get blood from. So by the end of my stay, they're in my hands, which is really painful. Um, and, uh, they can't narrow it down at the time. My doctor was a specialist who was here from Ireland and her philosophy was like abstinence for everything. So like from the time I had started seeing her, there was like no alcohol, no drug consumption, not that I had done any type of drugs at that point, even though she was convinced with this type of liver failure, she had said, have you done sniffer drugs? And I said, no, I haven't done any drugs. And she'd be like, what about needle drugs? And I was like, I haven't done any of the drugs. Please understand. I grew up scared straight with a cop dad, like alcohol that's it you know um so towards the end of the stay though every single day i'm getting the blood work and i'm getting the results and they're getting worse and worse and worse and she lets me know once this one enzyme hits a specific level i need to be prepped for toronto and they said in toronto referred to the transplant care center so essentially um it was a i think an evening um, at the hospital and my dad was there. My brother was not there because he was playing in the junior Olympics, uh, in Atlanta. And my mom was there watching and with the team. So she didn't really even have a full picture of what was happening at the time. 
if we back up, I, because I was in so much pain, uh, I wasn't obviously lying down. The, the hospital bed had to be elevated so I could breathe while I slept. And then I was on copious amounts of morphine. I had a little pump in my arm that I had a scar until about a year ago, actually, that it was just constantly giving me morphine so that I could breathe comfortably so that I could sleep um, and just wasn't in excruciating pain every second of the day. So um, suffice it to say, I was high as a kite most of my stay in the hospital. So there are pockets where it is very blurry and I only know from someone else's account or there are moments of painful, painful sobriety. Um, you know, when I didn't have any, you know, when I first wake up or things like that, when it was very clear and I do have a very clear memory of that time amidst some of the cloudiness of that couple of weeks. Uh, so the doctor tells my dad and I, uh, listen, your liver isn't getting any better, and we're at the point where we need to prep you for Toronto. So your your enzymes have reached that point. So tomorrow, we're going to prep you for Toronto. And my dad obviously got very upset and very sad, and I was like, woo, Toronto. Um, and he left and went home that night. Uh, later that night, apparently, um, some of my friends came and because I was at McMaster hospital, uh, and all of my friends were training or were staying around for the summer, I was the most popular guest in the wing and I had visitors every single day and like huge kudos to all my teammates and friends during that time, because they like really made me feel loved. Like I, they were bringing either magazines or just come in and sit with me and empathize with stinker next door or just you know just talk to me and make me feel normal yes some of the times I was very high and I don't know what we talked about uh but or they brought me ice cream one time so um one of those visits a good friend of mine was home for the summer which was Dan Rosenbaum uh formerly of Queens University and he uh we visited apparently I don't remember a lot of our visit, but uh, the next thing I knew, uh, the next morning, I'm waking up in a lot of pain and his father's at the door. And I know his father because his father works at McMaster. I had worked in the research office part-time and I met his dad. His dad was very powerful, head of pediatrics, did a lot of very intense research, um, especially with children with disabilities. So brought in a lot of substantial money to the university and the research school and uh, med school. <clears throat> so um, pretty good person to know, I guess, in circumstances like this. Um, he came in and said, uh, you know, Daniel came home really upset last night and I'm, I'm a little bit upset. And I said, I'm sorry. Like, what did I say? Uh, I'm so, I would, I'm so sorry. I start, you know, apologizing. And he said, no, this is not you. Kind of closed my door. Um, went over to the nurse's stand. Some things happened. And then one of the nurses came in and said, Kate, you're going for um, uh, a, a test right now. And I said, I didn't think I was supposed to go for any tests. And she's like, I'm going for a test right now. I said, okay, cool. So I went in for a type of scan. It's called an ERCP. Uh, and then I don't know who advised it, but all of a sudden I was taking uh, immunosuppressants. And 
my dad came in at lunchtime thinking I would be getting ready to get prepped. And he sort of like took a step back and said, your color looks better. Like already, like how, what is, how does this happen? And he spoke to Dr. Rosenbaum. I'm not really hundred percent sure, but uh, I got a new specialist that day. I never saw my old specialist again other than her telling me she was going back to Ireland. And um, I got started on a kept, uh, a course of immunosuppressants that ended up um, bringing my liver back. I didn't go into complete liver failure. I ended up making a complete recovery. And I was, um, you know, let go as an outpatient sort of uh, a couple weeks later. Um, yeah. So the, you bring up house a couple times, which I think is like a spot on example. So somebody of your education level and somebody who's gone through this, does that ever bother you? Because I, I get the I get the scientific process and we got to establish something and then prove it, disprove it. And we got to go through it. And, and this trial and error stuff of house. But like, I, I imagine maybe you don't feel it as much as maybe your dad, who's the one watching this. But does that not bother you a little bit that we still don't know the cause of this? And sometimes it takes like a certain person who knows a certain example or like uh, Dr. Rosenbaum getting involved that like sometimes it's just finding the right specialist who's seen this enough times to know the difference where like it, it's fascinating that you were in the situation for so long that the practice of medicine couldn't find it soon enough like this. Uh, I, like I said, I understand it's an education process, but something like this just seems to annoy me just a little bit. Oh. Completely. And I'm, I'm at peace with it now, but I, it's something that I think I'll always hold is that like understanding that at the end of the day, it is still going to be who, you know, like in, in the, in the, in these types of situations, um, my sister-in-law, my partner's sister has Crohn's and has struggled with that for you know, all of her life and has had some very serious medical procedures, including, you know, there's a, there's a removal that they do. And anyways, has spent a lot of time in hospitals and the, she has even said herself, one of the only reasons that she's received at times a, a certain quality of care is because her father was working in the medical school. And it's because there was a connection and that sucks because the average person doesn't have these types of connections and that shouldn't stand in the way or impede your ability to receive med appropriate and quality medical care. Um, it's definitely given me appreciation for kind of like alternative medicines. Like that's not, I'm not exclusively, I only do natural and alternative medicines now. No, I think there is a place and a balance for like both sides because, um, yeah. And I also don't, there's no one to necessarily blame except the system, which is a horrible and academic answer. Um, but yeah, our medical system is set up in a way right now that not everyone benefits equally and i am so privileged honored and thankful to be someone who who was able to benefit from a relationship that i had um that was able to um correct my course of care or or adequately direct me to a more appropriate um course of action for my health needs 
Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. I don't think that your previous doctors or healthcare providers had malicious intent. I think they were doing what they thought was best. It's just kind of frustrating to hear that you were on pace for a transplant, which is an extremely gnarly surgery when one treatment alternative and all of a sudden you were on like the mend. Like, that's just, to me, it's fascinating, but it's also frustrating when you put like a human element to it, right? Oh, 100%. And when I think about how much my life would have changed with a transplant, I like I get a little shaky because I would I wouldn't be I wouldn't be in the position I'm in right now and I haven't talked about this in a little while so I'm getting a little bit emotional about it but like I, I wouldn't have the same life that I have now um even with the recovery I had where my liver fully recovered I didn't need a transplant yes I was on a course of medication and, and things like that but I like if I had had a liver I, I wasn't my doctors were surprised I went back to school full to full time in the fall. And then were even more surprised I wanted to keep playing volleyball. So if I had had that transplant, I would not have probably done either of those things. And so then with my education on hold, my whole trajectory changes because I did school for 12 years straight to get to my PhD. Um, and then so do a lot of the like relationships and connections and friendships and networks and you know, as you know, a path your path of life isn't linear, but all those kind of like twists and turns that were because I both stayed in school, I stayed as a part of the team, you know, yada yada yada. I, I'd be in a totally different position, and I'm, I'm, you know, my dad at you know later in in later years, my dad has seen Dr. Rosenbaum and the Rosenbaum family at volleyball games when Queens has played at McMaster and, and different events like that, and every single time and he just gives him such an emotional you know handshake and hug pre-covid um because he you know he says like i i'm just so grateful you, you you saved my daughter's life like not just literally but also figuratively you know like the life that i have now that i got because i didn't have to have a transplant and and not to say that people who have transplants or go through transplants have any type of lesser or less full uh, life or experiences, but I'm just saying uh, I'm grateful that I didn't have to go through that additional trauma on top of uh, what I've already been through um, to get to the place I am today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then to jump ahead by by quite a bit here, somebody who's been in the gym with you and seen you coach, do you think your your awareness of going through this as an athlete, is that what helps you kind of connect with athletes a little bit quicker? Like it seems like you can get to the truth pretty quickly where, I mean, there's some, even some extreme cases where you're coaching at provincials one year and one of your athletes has a panic attack and like you have the tools and the confidence to kind of get them back to where they're feeling like safe and confident. So I'm just curious, is, is that something that you kind of contribute into your coaching where it's not all technical, tactical, you, like you try to get to know the athlete, like you try to get them that they can speak their truth to you, like all that good stuff. Like, is this something that you've taken again, a very, like you could have had the poor me's and been very frustrated in your life, but now you've connected with sport and you've kind of like given back a little bit in that way as well. Absolutely. Um, the, I think the year after, uh, or maybe it was even the year that it happened, that my liver failure happened. I went to Madawaska that same year. So my liver failure happened and I was hospitalized beginning of July. And I still ended up going to Madawaska end of uh, end of August. And um, there were definitely kids and coaches that saw me the previous year and then saw me this year, that year. 
and then they would have seen a huge change uh, because, I mean, we'll get to this, but part of the reason I recovered in the course of recovery was a heavy dose of corticosteroids, not the kind where you get jacked, but the kind where your immune system shuts down and you collect uh, everything possible. So I gained, I gained 50 pounds in the first two weeks. And then I ended up, I honestly don't know what I weighed at my heaviest because I refused to look at the scale when the doctor weighed me, but um, I was well over 200 pounds. I would say probably 210, 220 maybe. Um, and I'm five foot four. So that's, that's a lot of weight on, on my frame. Uh, but yeah, so to, to, sorry, to backpedal into to what you had asked. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think you can go through something like that and have that experience without having your perception change in some way. And I think where my perception real, or what helped me realize is that um, I had a point of maybe trauma or vulnerability or pain that a lot of young girls were almost afraid of. When you're 14, 15, life is very exciting, but it's also very scary. And when you see in movies and you see the world around you, some of the really intense pain, and you haven't felt that necessarily before, or maybe you haven't felt it as close to you, you're afraid of of if that were to happen to me, you know, what would my life be, you know, with that type of trauma or intense pain, you know, that there's no, there's no way out. Uh, there's no hope or there's no way I'm able to achieve the things that I wanted. Right. Then that becomes my narrative. And I very much wanted every girl that, and, and gentlemen, but I majority coach uh, women um, that no matter what they had been through, that they can, carve out whatever life that they had wanted. I mean, being sick and being in that position, I was told by the first doctor in the hospital, you will never play volleyball again. You will never like play volleyball again. So I had a sober day where I said goodbye to volleyball in the hospital by myself, thinking I would never play it. I would never coach it. I could never like, so once I had that sort of reckoning and then was told you can actually, you can play volleyball again one day and you will recover fully. My entire perspective changed. And so I, I felt that because I had had this change in perspective and, and I would say like gift because it really did start to open up my eyes about like the pain and insecurities that I was having with you know my eating disorder and everything else what what else am I going to give to to young people that I'm coaching? Yeah, volleyball technical stuff is great. But to me, in 20 years, when I think back about like the coaches I had, what am I going to remember? It's probably going to be moments where they've helped me get through personal things that are, you know, painful, whether that's on the volleyball court, having a panic attack, or whether it's something I'm dealing with at home that I can't shake off at practice, right? Um, so... Yeah, I think it, it helped me gain a lot of perspective, and I'm uh, I'm not shocked, scared to talk about it. Obviously, I'm talking about it on this podcast, but uh, it, I think being open about it and, and letting people know that like you can go through things and and you will go through things, and they will not all be great. They will be painful, probably. Um, but but 
you know, you are capable of doing things far, far greater than, than you, you think you are. And pain and suffering is, is not the end. Just so I have a clear understanding, volleyball wasn't going to be an option because you were one collision or bad dive away from like really messing up your own body. Like, was it a fitness capacity thing that you were going to never be able to achieve so you can play at the level you wanted? Like, what was the health concern that you wouldn't be able to play volleyball again? Yeah. So in the hospital, the health concern was that, well, because I would be post transplant um, or or because I was on the, you know, not mend the doctor that told me that I would never be able to play again was like, you're going to need a transplant. Like that's, that's the only solution out of this. And therefore the inflammation that you're going to have uh, and, and the risk of, of damage that, that you have within this sport. Uh, there's no, there's no way. Yeah. One, one dive, one ball hit that kind of thing. So once I got a new specialist, they said, no, once you're recovered, quote unquote, you'll be able to, to play again, but for the first year, six months to a year, I wasn't allowed in the gym during warm up because if a ball shanked off or hit me in the stomach, it could do damage to either like restart some stuff that was happening or offset all the like good stuff that had happened. And so um, I was on the team in my third year as a like staff hybrid member. Basically, you're on the team, you'll be an assistant coach until you can play again, until we have the clearance from 75 doctors. Um, and so, and, and one of the conditions was I couldn't be in the gym for warm up and I couldn't go to practice. So. And, and kind of on your earlier points there about, you know, you had an eating disorder, you're, you're 200 pounds with your frame, and that's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm curious, does that get magnified a little bit with volleyball? And, and the reason I ask that, like, I'm, I'm a communication arts, I'm an advertising student. So I, I am a little bit sensitive to the fact that let's create some discomfort in somebody and oh, lo and behold, there's a product for that. And I think that gets that's exaggerated a lot more, I think females than males. But I think also in our sport, for lack of a better term, I think there is a body type that is kind of deemed a little bit more optimal for high performance in our sport. And it does have a similar look where I think sport is great. I think volleyball is great. I think men and women compete at the same level. I think you can play recreationally with the other gender where other sports maybe struggle with that. I don't think it's a big deal for a male to ref females or a female to ref uh, males in our sport. So I think volleyball is maybe a little further ahead than some sports, but I still think there's an ideology that like there is a certain look you have to acquire for you to be like a top notch volleyball player. So I'm curious with you being five forward, like, did you feel that as an athlete and you try to maybe counter that or encourage athletes who don't fit the mold when you're coaching? Absolutely. And I think, I think that there is a quote unquote volleyball body that we've idealized. Like you said, um, I've spoke to a lot of, um, I spoke to university classes and I spoke with a lot of clubs in Ontario um, about my experiences as an athlete. And I even told you, like, looking at, like, women who I wanted, you know, I idolized and I wanted to be like, and very much that was, you know, looking at my body and looking at their body and being like, mm, not the same, mine bad, theirs good, right? Uh, the way that I was taught and educated was like, oh, well, everything has a, a, an answer in life. Everything is black and white. So therefore, my body bad, that body good, 
right? Because also in media, advertising, TV shows, uh, did I see my body? No, I saw those bodies. So therefore, all those bodies must be good. My body must be bad. Um, and I describe, I've described it to a lot of women as it wasn't anyone's fault. Maybe, maybe some of the people in advertising, perhaps, but but the the women that were around me, I was a stegosaurus wanting to be a brontosaurus so bad. And I wasn't a brontosaurus. I'm not six foot two. I will never look six foot two. And I will never look the way a six foot two body looks because I am five foot four. I am a stegosaurus. But guess what? My spikes are dope. They are so fantastic at defending. And my tail is also spiked. So it also works as a great whip for defending against predators. I'm also lower to the ground so I can move through bushes stealthily. The Stegosaurus is a beautiful dinosaur and has so many benefits. You would never say that's a bad dinosaur, right? My body was just different than the ones I saw around me. And I didn't have both the messaging or maybe the role models or just someone else around me to be able to say, hey, your your body, also good, right? Uh, Stegosauruses, also an awesome dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brontosauruses are great because they're brontosauruses. But guess what? The stegosaurus, you don't need to wear a fake neck. I don't know. I'm, this metaphor has kind of run away from me. But, <laughs> to, you know, you don't need to, to try to be a different type of dinosaur. Be the best stegosaurus you can be. Um, and and if, if you kind of can use that, that's kind of where I, I, I think I lost my way a lot is that I got so fixated and focused on like the body um, and, and, and in that mindset. So um, did, did I, did I answer the question? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. No, I think there's, there's a lot to cover in that area. And I think, yeah, the metaphor works. I think people just need to understand that maybe optimal isn't the right word, but I think the, like, in sports, I, I think there is a certain body type that does, it, it's more effective. I think watching the Olympics, you can kind of point out that like gymnasts tend to be smaller and volleyball players tend to be longer. Swimming has a body type. Like, I think that's just the way sports sometimes work, but it doesn't make it a right or wrong thing. And it doesn't mean that there can't be exceptions to the rules. Right. So. And that's it. Right. It's like, that is the only area where I say that there's like an issue for sure. Performance issues. Like it makes sense wrestling you don't have people that are small right like it's like there are there are uh physical metrics for different sports that provide or result in optimal performance metrics right like if we break it down into like a sports science even type situation but i think where the issue is is when we get caught up in performance versus appearance or performance versus aesthetics. So, and examples for how this can get away from us, there can be great players, particularly in uh, liberos, where you do not need to be a tall stature. Is a tall libero a benefit? Sometimes, 100%. Julie Young, you are incredible. And I have never seen a six foot something uh, human dive across a backcourt the way that I have seen you cover a backcourt but that being said um i've seen as a coach i would say i've been a part of discussions with other coaches where other coaches are making decisions on athletes performance 
based on the appearance of their body. And being a part of those as a coach, I have worked very hard to uh, assert my perspectives in what I've just explained to you about, you know, performance and physical metrics and looking at data versus, um, you know, appearance and aesthetic perception. But um, yeah, so I both like agree with you, but then I also think like, ah, I think that it's important we're paying attention to the, to the language that's happening and hey, do we need uh, at like under 14U or 16U for some of these um, uniforms for young people to be so tight or and or revealing? No, like I, I, I just just making the point. Uh, I in my the last year I coached club I gave the girls options of what type of shorts they wanted to wear because some of them weren't interested in wearing spandex for sure. I really, really loved what the United League did in the States uh, this past year where they could wear long tights or spandex. I think, I think that's awesome. I think that helps. Yeah, I think the, the movie Moneyball had a nice quote that uh, we're not trying to sell jeans. Like we're not looking for a certain model or certain body type. And anyone who follows uh, Matt Nickel, he's a hockey trainer on Instagram. He had a funny quote uh, quoting the jean line. And let's just say uh, Nikita Kucherov, who was the, the Conn Spythe winner for, or excuse me, I don't think he won the Conn Spythe. I think uh, the goalie did, but uh, an MVP level hockey player. Let's just say his body type with a shirt off looks more similar to mine than Martin Reeder. So it kind of gave me hope that if you're you're a high performance athlete, you don't have to look like, I think Martin Reeder is just a perfect example because he's 6'8 and jacked and like, looks the part if you could design a volleyball player in a lab it would be mark reader but there, there is a spot for other people to perform and still be at a high level right so uh, i think hopefully as, as data takes over more and more sports and i think data is already in university volleyball a lot of people know how to stat and have people on their bench and it's affecting college and hopefully it continues to trickle down that like you said you go to a tryout and we're not looking for people who look the part we're looking for people who can perform and help us win points right 100 percent. it's uh yeah that's exactly it. Show me like what you can do with a volleyball. Show me how you show up for your team, right? Versus, uh, you know, trying to come in with any preconceived notions or things like that. Exactly what you said. Well, this has been awesome. We haven't had a, a heavy episode in a while, so I'm glad you could provide that and share all that you did. But uh, the tradition we're still holding on the show way back from the Dallas Keith days is, man, the volleyball community is awesome and unique. And even though you've played at a high level, you're an OUA champion, you've coached a ton, uh, you've got a PhD, Something awesome or funny or odd must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share a funny story with us before we let you go. Yeah. Um, can I share two? Sure, sure. Um, I'll share a playing story and a coaching story. Um, so playing story, I was chosen for Ontario Summer Games in my, I would have been 17 or 16, uh, for beach volleyball. I was playing with Laura Pow Pow. Um, and so... Uh, that was our sort of feisty team. Alora is, you know, five, maybe five, five on a good day. I'm five, four. So we were a defense heavy team. Um, and we ended up qualifying for Ontario Summer Games, you know, with the girls older than us that a lot of them were really strong. Um, the men especially it was a really strong cohort. Uh, Mike Johnson, Taylor Hunt, uh, Duncan, Karen's and um, Tompkins Stocka. So it was just like a very exciting game. So there was like an opening ceremony. Um, it was just like exciting, very like affirming. Um, and we were just like, like maybe we'll win. Like, like we've knocked off tall teams before. Like, let, let, let's just see what's going to happen. So we, we were seated like 
middle of the pack, like maybe even middle top. And uh, in our, I think, either last pool play game or playoff game, I don't remember. Um, I One of us shanks the ball. I guess it must have been me. Alora runs to go get it. And I, not looking, trip over her uh, in my pursuit for the ball. And, and I miss it. Obviously, it doesn't go over. We lose the point. And she didn't scramble out of the way. There was kind of like a miscommunication. My knee went into her head and I gave her a concussion. And uh, she was out. So we obviously forfeit that game where the score was. We go to the medical tent and, and we're done for the tournament. And like, I'm only upset, not that we lost, but I'm upset because I hurt my friend, my best friend. Um, and, and, and I'm devastated. I'm just apologizing. And, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, and, and all these things. And, and, you know, our friends are coming over after to be like, okay, and whatever. And we were like, yeah, like we lost the game 25 to, and then, and then, or 21. I know we lost the game 21 to, and, and, and someone goes, no, it was uh, it was twenty one four, and Laura and I broke into the biggest, most authentic smiles ever. And we're like, oh my god, we have four! Yeah. <laughs> like we were thrilled for some reason to have four instead of two. Um, and the med staff that was helping us looked at us like, oh god, <laughs> you're excited about getting four? Oh wow, this is that. But uh, no, it ended up being okay. She ended up recovering, and we are still best friends to this day. That was in 2006, so that was many, many, many years ago. Um, but that's a story that I will uh, never forget, and I tell people. And uh, the best story, though, overall, my volleyball career, period, I was coaching Forest City. We were training in Florida. I was very lucky to coach that team that year. The parents... Um, paid for them to go down to Florida and play in some tournaments down there and train in one of those like volleyball facilities. And we had such a great time. And the one day we were training there, they said, you're going to have to be in this side gym. And this area is blocked off. They had security guards. There was, it was very essential. Official was very intense. We realized somewhere, somehow during this practice that the uh there's an nba team practicing in the gym beside us because they're in town to play the orlando magic and they we got permission to basically like stand on the sides as long as we didn't like scream or take photos or anything and i kid you not I'm standing with 12 very anxious hormonal teenagers behind me and they're huddled behind me like I'm going to provide some type of defense or something. <laughs> and LeBron James walks out of the gym <laughs> and is a foot from me and says, like, hey, how's it going? And I said, oh, it's pretty good. Like I wasn't just chatting with LeBron James. <laughs> and I feel like 12 cents sets of claws digging into my body and he goes that's great see you later and, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he walks out with the rest of the team and uh so yeah i met lebron james with my volleyball team i spoke words to him he has processed all of this um and spoken words back to me and there is a very blurry uh illegal snapchat video one of them took that's circulating somewhere 
but um but yeah that's definitely the the highlight that i mean that that comes to mind for sure i'd be telling everybody that story (laughs) (laughs) like the story sometimes evolves to like i met lebron james or i saw lebron james to like i know lebron james (laughs) i hung out with lebron james or like I practice with LeBron James, you know, like how it depends on the audience, but um, I guess this is now ruining that. But um, the four city 16 year team of 2015 can, can back me up. <laughs> it happens. Well, what a class act by him to walk by and actually say something. Cause I think he has to be aware of his presence that even just him saying hi to you guys was like the highlight of their trip probably. Oh, it was for sure the highlight of the trip. And nothing that we had done to that point. We went to Universal Studio. Like, we had done a lot of really, none of that mattered. <laughs> um, and to be clear, like, he walked out and it's silent, except for those, like, little excited, like, teenager noises of, like, <laughs> and, like, and then just, like, <laughs> you know. And just, oh, it was so good. And I remember, like, the whole team walked by. I must have been, I guess it must have been Cat. I think he must have been out of Miami by then. But, yeah, like, the whole team walked by. And, you know, there's so many non-basketball players on my team just being like, tell me when it's LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> and but, oh, they knew. Everyone knew. It was, it was pretty cool. He was very kind. Um, he is a very big man. Um, but, uh, I mean... Stand-up team. All of them said hello and very polite and kind. Yeah, when we're talking body type, I think LeBron is proof that there is is somebody who has an advantage maybe to play basketball, say, over like me or Duncan Cairns or somebody. I think he he was maybe genetic lottery a little bit more to have a head start, I'd say. Um, How dare you say that about about Duncan (laughs) Cairns? I think Duncan Cairns could be the NBA dunk champion or all-star of the world if he wanted to. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I just have to defend him on record. He is my, <laughs> one of my best friends. And if he hears this, I, you know, just want to let him know where my 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 loyalty lies. So, well, I'm just throwing the bait out there. When Duncan hears this, he can rebuttal and hopefully come on the show because I'd love to hear some of his stories too. But for today, that was awesome, Kylie. Thanks so much for sharing everything that you did. It was great to hear about your career. And and like I said at the start, I I felt like I knew your career. You and I have chatted a whole bunch, but I even learned a lot. So I'm sure the listeners are soaking this in. And thanks for sharing all that you did. And Definitely some good stories in there and definitely a lot of learning. So thanks. And we'll have to get you back on because I'm sure the, the journey's still going and you're still doing a lot in our sport. Well, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be able to share just my meager playing career and, <laughs> and some of the experiences I've had, you know, in volleyball both with you and, and just like throughout my uh, life. So thanks so much for having me. Happy to chat. Uh, yeah, let's do this again sometime.